0: So thank you uh, for joining us for uh, church. I want to begin this morning by uh, making a statement that will be helpful for our church body and uh, clear up uh, some questions that we've been getting this week in regards to the uh, never-ending onslaught of our both local and and state and and federal government. So let me make this statement. Hopefully I only have to say this once, and it will bring clarity to all of the questions and emails uh, that we have received, some have asked uh, me this week about a religious exemption when it comes to vaccine mandates. It is hard to know exactly what that means or exactly what will even count as a religious exemption in the days ahead. But I do know this, our faith has long stood with those wrestling with such things as a matter of conscience. Conscience. And so I'm here to announce this morning that on Friday of last week, our board voted unanimously to add the following statement to our church constitution. So listen very carefully. Our church recognizes the role of vaccines in eradicating many major modern diseases. With that being said, our church also recognizes and respects certain matters of personal conscience for our members and constituents. This includes things like personal religious decisions in regards to military service, contraception, certain types of medical care, and other issues for which a wide variety of biblical opinion exists. Therefore, the pursuit chooses to formally affirm and recognize members in our community who may have an objection to use of a vaccine based on their biblical interpretation and or deeply held religious values, while at the same time, affirming those who choose to be vaccinated. The doctrine of Christian liberty is essential, and Christians should not be compelled to receive medical services of any kind that violate their conscience. Now, depending upon your individual situation, this may grant certain members who belong to this church freedom to file for and receive medical religious exemptions in the days ahead, I don't pretend to be a doctor uh, or a lawyer. I'm not sure exactly how this will work uh, in the coming days, but if people have questions or need things signed or further advice, uh, we're encouraging people to direct all of their questions or concerns to our email address contact at And with that, let me tell you a story. I- I'm named after my grandfather. He was Russell Bradley Johnson. I am Russell Brian Johnson. He was born in 1921 in a tiny town in northern Minnesota. He moved west to Washington State at the age of 19, driving a Ford Model A nearly 1,500 miles to the state that he would call home for the rest of his life. But in 1942, an event happened that would change his life forever. He was drafted into the U.S. Army to fight in World War II. And at that time, my grandfather belonged to a denomination that held a belief that Christians should not fight in war. And so, although he was drafted, he became known as what was called a conscientious objector, a person who would refuse to fight or carry a weapon during a time of armed conflict. Although his decision would come with great controversy and backlash, our government recognized and protected his right to file a religious objection. <laughs> And from 1942 until the war ended in September of 45, my grandfather served in the 55th Medical Battalion of the U.S. Army, having the ability to participate in the task at hand, yet protected from violating his conscience and religious beliefs. Although he would not fight, my grandfather would still go on to receive VA benefits after the war ended. He would still go on to collect a military pension for the remainder of his life. He would still be recognized as a veteran for all official purposes, and he would still go on to be honored by the U.S. Army when he died in 2010. But it seems like the days of making room for people who see things differently than us without marginalizing them from society or penalizing them from government might be behind us. I hope that's not the case. In this room today, there are literally hundreds of different opinions about things like divorce and remarriage, public education, in vitro fertilization, social security enrollment, the celebration of certain holidays, gender roles, political parties, just to name a few. Hopefully what makes us unique is our appeal towards Christian unity in the midst of disagreement. Like my grandfather, some people in this room would object to mandatory military service. Others may object to certain types of birth control, like many of our brothers and sisters who come from a Catholic tradition. And still others in this room may object to certain types of medical procedures, yes, even including certain vaccines. And guess what? All those types of Christians you will have to spend eternity with, so I would suggest you figure out how to get along with them. Now hear me, I believe most vaccines work. I also believe it's none of the government's business whether you decide to get one, and any attempt to discriminate against people who choose different vaccination outcomes should be flatly rejected by every common sense person in this room. Our church recognizes and honors the role of governmental structures. In fact, government is orchestrated by God to help order nations. Our church also recognizes the alarming trend towards governmental overreach, especially into the constitutionally protected affairs of private religious organizations, and in order to remain free, it is imperative that we call this out. The Bible doesn't have any verses that speak directly to the issue of vaccines. However, it has a lot of verses that speak about unity, charity, grace, love, peace, and liberty, and a whole lot of other things that we aren't too great at as a culture and whether or not you receive a vaccine is not the business of the government nor the business of your employer but instead a private medical decision that should be made by individuals without undue pressure or interference and whatever you decide you have a place at this church I talk to pastors every week who are literally on the verge of quitting because all they get is constantly beat up by online drive-by critics who only want to criticize their every move I would encourage you not to be that type of person because our city needs more pastors, not less. Don't allow a disagreement to cause you to disengage. And to quote St. Augustine, maybe the most preeminent of the early church fathers, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And that's where we stand, amen? Amen. a little hard to find common sense people in our world today. It would seem as if just normal rationale would cause people to be in these type of positions, but the reality is, is we are no longer governed by rational people, and we live in the, in the midst of, 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 of a culture that is just about upside down, and it's never been more important for the church to be clear about its values going forward, and I know sometimes people like to critique and criticize, well, pastor, I don't want you to bring politics into the church, Friend, your relationship with Jesus impacts every sphere of society, including the political realm. And so we don't get the option to be neutral. You don't get the option to be Switzerland in your Christian faith. That's not how this works. No, because Jesus takes residence on the inside of who I am, everywhere I go is impacted by that Christological message. Meaning that, no, the church should never be reduced to a political pulpit. However, if the church is afraid to have a voice in the governmental realm, all we're doing is giving authority over to the evil one to take residence in places Christians should occupy. So we're going to try to transcend the issues, transcend the political binary, and speak to the truth of what Scripture would give us as guidelines and principles in this very hour. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. I believe Jesus is returning soon. I believe we are living in the last days, and not just in the last days, but I think in the last hours of the last days. I believe there is a coming judgment. I believe both hell and heaven are real and eternal places. I believe we are in the midst of two dueling revivals, a revival of righteousness and a revival of iniquity. I believe they run in tangent until the culmination of time by which there is one last final war in Christ is victorious. I believe no one's theology on the end times is perfect, but we ought to teach best we can about this important reality. And friend, you can believe differently about the details as long as we agree on the outcome. Not only did Christ have a bodily resurrection, but he will have a bodily return and he is coming soon. Jesus is coming back for a victorious bride, not a victim, not a bystander, not a girlfriend, not a one-night stand, not a cheap tender date, but a covenantal bride who has oil in her lamp, who is eagerly awaiting the arrival of the groom. Friend, as sure as I'm standing here today, Jesus is returning soon. Now, it's interesting for me as, as a student of some of these topics to study how other world religions treat the end of the world. You know, Mormons believe that when Jesus returns, he's returning to set up his earthly kingdom in the state of Missouri. If you've ever been to Missouri, you know that's not true. All of Missouri might be skipped over in the return of Christ, maybe. But the Mormons believe that Christ is returning to Missouri, not true. The Muslims believe that Mahdi, or the guided one, has already been born. And in fact, he is hiding and one day will be revealed. And he will unite the Muslim sects and prepare the world for the unveiling of the prophets of Allah. Hindus believe that Vishnu, the principal deity of Hinduism, dissolves and in doing so regenerates the universe In an unending, eternal recapitulation until finally it is made perfect. But Christians confess as part of our doctrinal creed, Jesus is coming soon. There will be a resurrection from the dead, and there is eternal life that follows. It was the Apostles' Creed of the 2nd century. It was the Nicene Creed of the 4th century. It was the Athanasian Creed of the 5th century. It was affirmed by the church councils, and this is what we proclaim. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Universal Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Friend, that is what it means to be a Christian, that we affirm these truths. No, it's not a choose-your-own-adventure. It's not a copy-and-paste the things that you like while skipping over the things that you don't. No, it's not some sort of New Age syncretism where you get to mix in every world religion you like so you can appear more relevant to a pagan culture. No, this is what it means to be a believer. We confess the doctrine of our apostolic fathers. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming soon. This is what it means to be a Christian that we believe these things and hold these truths, even as our founding fathers in a political sense said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. I'm gonna caution you this morning. Don't be a Christian in your soteriology, but a fatalist in your eschatology. By that, I mean this. Don't be a Christian in your doctrine of salvation, but a fatalist in your doctrine of the end times. The same Jesus who has the power to save has the power to heal, deliver, raise from the dead, and secure you for eternity in heaven with him. See, some believers only have enough faith to believe that God can do something in our mortal bodies. They only have enough faith for this place, which the Bible says is passing away. No, the Jesus who had the power to save still today holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And that's why when Christ returns, he will declare, give up your dead, He will declare, get up out of your graves. Why? Because he holds the title deed to earth. He is the one who oversees. Things like death and the grave bow in the presence of Jesus. The things that are impossible for us are not impossible for him. They bow as lower versions of authority to the lordship of Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who has the power to save your soul and forgive your sins has the power to raise you from the grave. And friend, there is a day that is coming coming soon, by which you will hear a trumpet blast, a shout from heaven, and the Lord will descend on a cloud, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive will be caught up in the air, and in the twinkling of an eye we will be transformed into his image and into his likeness, and then the end will come. We live in the shadow of the imminent return of Christ. For the next number of weeks, I'm going to preach on this message. I'm going to hammer it home. I believe it is an essential truth for this hour. We have to be believers who attach ourselves to the blessed hope. The apostle Peter talks about it. The apostle John talks about it. The apostle Paul talks about it. It's talked about in Titus. It's talked about by James, the brother of Jesus. It's talked about about by Jesus in in the four gospels, especially in the three synoptics. All over scripture, both old and new. The writers are helping believers have a theological understanding that extends beyond natural life. Oh, friend, if your hope is in this world today... It don't surprise me that you're depressed, oppressed, and on your way to being possessed. <laughs> All you have to do is turn on the news, and read the newspaper, open your windows. God forbid, go online. Somebody asked me in my Q and A this week, "What would happen if social media disappeared for a day?" I said, "World peace." <laughs> World peace. Man, if you're hoping. And insurance and inheritance is only in this place. Scripture says it's fading away. That's why Scripture says place your treasure in a place where moth and rust cannot destroy. Because when the fire comes, it consumes everything that is hay, wood, and stubble. But it refines everything that is gold, silver, and precious stones. So we want to put our treasure in a place that has value just beyond our temporal Experience. Not only are we in the book of Revelation as a church, but it feels like we're in the book of Revelation as a culture. And what I've found is as soon as you begin to study the book of Revelation, you begin to see these signs wherever you go. I know you've had this experience before. You buy a car and you feel like you're really unique because you've never seen anybody else drive this car. And as soon as you get this car, about your first two weeks in, you recognize everybody has this car. And you go to the mall and you go shopping and you come out and you swear you're trying to get into your car, only to recognize it's not your car, it's just a car that looks like your car. Because as soon as you begin to drive it, you begin to notice it all around you. That's what happens when you begin to read the book of Revelation. Your eyes begin to be open to the signs that are already there. No, the signs aren't manifesting because you're reading the book. Your eyes are, the eyes of your understanding are being open to see the signs that have always been there to belong with. And so we're people who are opening our eyes to scripture and we're allowing his word to speak and direct our lives. You remember last week we talked about wars and rumors of war. Y'all watch the news before you come to church this morning? After 20 years of fighting as a nation, Afghanistan today, as I preach, is falling to the Taliban. It's the worst foreign policy failure of the United States since Vietnam. It's not just wars and rumors of war. You remember when we talked about earthquakes last week and a 7.2 hit Haiti yesterday? Friend, these are signs that point to the end of time. I'm not trying to be a doomsday prophet. And I want you to understand that not only do we look at signs as birth pains that speak to things that are difficult in our atmosphere, but we also have a lot of signs that speak to the revival and the renewal of the church that also causes us to look in the direction of what scripture calls our blessed hope. We're in two dueling revivals at the same time. We're in a revival of iniquity and the nations are raging, but we are in a revival of righteousness and the bride is awakening and that's why you ought to have hope because both of these point to the return of Jesus. See, if you only focus on the negative, I'm telling you, you'll begin to have a heaviness in your spirit. But sometimes people only focus on the positive and in doing so, they reject They say it's faith, but they reject anything that's negative almost as if it doesn't exist. And you know that faith doesn't require you to deny that problems exist. It requires you to deny those problems an undue place of influence in your life. So we understand we're in the midst of two dueling revivals. Hear me. The book of Revelation is not called the Revelation of End Times. It is not called the revelation of catastrophe and problems. It is not called the revelation of wars and famine, but instead the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where all healthy eschatology starts, by revealing. That's what revelation means, by revealing the beauty and brilliance of Jesus. Because if you don't first have the beauty of Jesus as your filter, you will operate without hope. And as a believer, you have given up your right to operate without hope because hope deferred makes the heart but a promise fulfilled is the tree of life (sighs) no you've given up your right to be hopeless well pastor the world is so bad yeah but when the world's at its darkest the church is at its brightest Come on, friend, the last 18 months has been hard, but it's also been a gift to churches who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Have you noticed what God's doing in the Northwest? He is shifting the religious landscape. Come on, he is setting up and he is putting down. He is rearranging entities, principalities, and powers. He is positioning people for increase and at the same time, moving people who've been blockades out of the way. I'm here to communicate to you today, we have never lived in a more ex- Exciting time to be alive because the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God and of our king and the kingdom suffereth violence but the violent take it by force Now oh, he is the prince of peace but he operates with a sword in the nations and he promotes one and puts low another And he promotes those who have humbled themselves under the mighty hand of the Lord. And the heart of the king is like water in the hand of God. He moves it in whatever way he desires. God has not lost the narrative. God doesn't have a PR problem. We do. God is not anxious about how the world looks, hoping it's not a bad reflection on him. Friend, Jesus has already finished the story, and it ends better than it started, because the reign of the latter is greater than the reign of the former, and we haven't seen anything yet. (laughs) Come on, just let me preach for a moment this morning, friend. I know the world seemed to be losing its mind, but these are pains that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ. Knowing what is to come gives us context for how to process the pain of the temporal. Like a woman experiencing birth pains, we see hardship through the lens of beauty, knowing that which is about to be revealed. When you don't know what your pain points to, that is what causes anxiety in your life. There's this show I, I like to watch every once in a while, uh, I think it's on TLC. And the title of the show is this, I didn't know I was pregnant. (laughs) I've never been pregnant before. (laughs) However, I feel like if I was, at least by the time I got to the eighth or ninth month, I would know. But believe it or not, there's a segment of our society who does not know even at the eighth or the ninth month. And they're interviewing these women after they've had babies, and they ask them about this experience. And it's always so interesting to me. They're interviewing these women. They're saying, well, I was there nine months, and I didn't know I was pregnant. I was sitting at home, and all of a sudden, I had unexplained pain. And because I didn't know why I was having pain, it created anxiety in my heart. And I knew that I had to get to the emergency room right away. Some say they think they were having a heart attack. Others say they think they were having an aneurysm. Others say they think that their lungs were closing and they couldn't breathe. They didn't know what it was. They had no context for the pain. Watch, when you don't have context for the pain that you experience on this side of heaven, instead of causing perseverance, it causes anxiety in your life. See, this is why it's important to talk about the signs. Because when you see them, instead of freaking out, you recognize, "No, I'm on a foundation. It's a rock that is higher than I. It gives me the ability to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, walk through the valley of weeping because I know rejoicing is on the other side. I know my pain, my tribulation, my trouble is temporary because at the end of time, my savior will stand on the earth. And in fact, I know my redeemer lives. As believers, we have context for the pain that we experience here. Can you imagine how depressing it is for people who worship government as God or worship politics as God or worship science as God? Can you imagine how frustrating it is for those individuals when those gods disappoint them? In fact, we become like the gods we worship. And for us as believers, because the hope of glory has taken residence inside of us, It gives us the proper way to understand the tribulation and the troubles that we face on this side of heaven. When the nations are raging, God laughs because he has context for the pain. When the birth pains are happening around us, we don't think, man, I'm going to have a heart attack. My heart's going to fail. I'm not going to make it. No, we understand. Something is coming. So for us, we have a hope that is anchored in heaven. That's why scripture says, with patient endurance, preserve, even in the midst of many hardships, knowing that he who began a good work is faithful to finish. You know, we get a lot of our information about the end days from the book of Revelation. It was written by a guy named the Apostle John. I love the Apostle John. He was both a son of thunder and the apostle of love at the same time. The Apostle John lived during a time of incredible persecution for believers. In fact, if you think of it this week, you should pray for the persecuted church in Afghanistan. The Apostle John is living during a time of incredible persecution. There's a Roman emperor named Domitian who hates the church. The reason he is so threatened by the church is because they refuse to worship him as a god. Because in the Roman governmental system, emperors were treated as gods. Reminds me a little bit of our governmental system today. And Domitian was so angry at the apostle John that he held a big event in the Roman Colosseum. The Roman Colosseum seated 80,000. And they all came out to watch Domitian boil John alive in a vat of oil in AD 95. But John is too stubborn to die because the greatest argument against natural death is an unfinished assignment. John refuses to die. They literally boil him alive and he refuses to die. The Colosseum is so shook that 80,000 folks give their life to Jesus in a day and it transforms the city. Domitian is so upset because he's a petty tyrant that he sends John to the island of Patmos because he thinks that John won't cause any trouble there. Here's the problem. The Bible says that John was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard a voice saying, come up higher. Hear me, hear me. Any time that you're in the spirit, it becomes the Lord's day for your life. Yeah, sometimes believers, you know, because we're so accustomed to our preferences, our likes, our dislikes, all of the things that we love and don't love. You know, sometimes even for us, it's hard to be in the Spirit on a Sunday morning in an air conditioned building with great worship and okay preaching and cool lights and everything else. I, Pastor, I just wasn't feeling it today. I just don't know. I just couldn't get in the Spirit. They just tried to boil John alive. Now he's abandoned all alone on a prison island named Patmos. He sleeps in a cave for 12 months. The only reason he's allowed to go back to apostolically oversee the churches in Asia Minor is because finally after a year of being in prison, Domitian croaks. And watch what the Bible says in the book of Revelation 1 and verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice almost as a trumpet saying, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And what you see right in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia Minor. Every day is the Lord's day when you're in the spirit. Let me hit you on something. Just let me say this and y'all be offended later. But just let me say this just for a moment. Judas had the best pastor, the best mentor, the best discipler, literally the most talented person to ever walk the face of the earth, and yet somehow his life still went undeveloped. John manages to develop on an island all by himself. So maybe it's not your pastor, but instead your commitment to growth and maturity that best dictates whether or not you develop. Now, we're so quick to blame just about everything else in life. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always the wife's or the husband's or the kids or the culture or the busyness or you name it. The enemy loves when you make excuses. He'll feed them to you, actually. He'll just give you them. You think you made them up. No, it's just the enemy speaking to you. He hands out excuses for free. Because excuses are the primary thing that ends up delaying our spiritual development. And I'm so intrigued by the parallel between a guy like Judas and a guy like John. They both had the same access to Jesus. And yet one ends his life in shame, and the other manages to develop all by himself on an island called Patmos because he recognized that any day's the Lord's day when I'm in the Spirit. And I thought to myself, what a picture of the church! You know, here today, we got people who drive from all sorts of different cities. Some live close, others live far. All sorts of different family dynamics and family systems. Some come from the best home that you could ever imagine, and others come from more difficult circumstances. Some of you have been saved so long, you can't even remember that salvation prayer. Others of you are the first person ever in your family to profess faith in Jesus Christ. But the key here for us... Is that regardless of how good the environment is or how great the presentation is or how qualified the pastoral staff is, at the end of the day, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Which means you ought to make a decision. Am I gonna be a person who develops and grows? See, here's what happens. When we feel treated in a wrong way, oftentimes we develop an offended spirit. We tend to blame God, curse our surroundings, and close our ears. But what if the invitation to come up higher doesn't happen until you walk through the wilderness that God's inviting you into? The primary revelation John has is this, behold, the lamb is worthy. I want that type of faith in the midst of difficulty. I want that type of faith in the midst of sickness. I want that type of faith in the midst of conflict and persecution. Behold, the lamb is worthy. But God, I'm getting treated unfair. I think he knows a thing or two about that. But God, I'm really getting challenged, and I feel a little uncomfortable, and I feel like just giving up. And you know, Paul says in Hebrews about Jesus that he is our great high priest who is familiar with each and every one of our sufferings meaning that there's nothing that you will ever walk through in life that Christ cannot sympathize with. And friends, for you and I, I think that's why the authors of scripture are so clear to designate Christ as not just the beginning, but the end, not just the author, but the finisher, not just the alpha, but the omega, not just the first, but the last. The one who is faithful on both sides of our story. John's on an island but nothing will keep him from an encounter. And I love how one of the first things that the Lord tells him in the midst of his isolation is write this down and send it to the churches. Why? Because you were created for community. Friend, if you read the book of Revelation and you focus more on the Antichrist than you do the risen Christ, you ain't gonna receive your blessing this is the revelation of how beautiful jesus is and revelation one is like an introduction and revelation two through three is john recording the seven letters to the seven churches in asia minor and in john four in revelation four john sees the throne room of heaven And in Revelation 5, John declares the Lamb is worthy and the Lamb is holy. And then in Revelation 6 through 18, it gets really bad really quickly. As John writes about a seven-year period called the Tribulation. And the Tribulation is filled with all sorts of dramatic encounters that people... Who, because of their unbelief and are under judgment are experiencing and as john commute, c- communicates about the fiery love of god he's talking about it in these two contexts that like he says in john 3 and 16 for god so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. John 3 and then verse 18. But for those who do not believe, they are already under condemnation. Friend, hear me. The book of Revelation both reveals the fiery love and the fiery justice of a holy God. And I think sometimes in an attempt to downplay the justice of God, we end up deleting things that make us uncomfortable because we can't envision God doing them. But can I just tell you today, you don't love people more than he does. His love is not defined by the cultural parameters of what folks in our world say love is like and I don't understand it and I can't always explain it and the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature from 2000 years ago and it's filled with colors and creatures and timelines and trumpets and seals and bowls and angels and elders. At a bare minimum, it's complicated. But I do know this, when the Bible talks about the character and the nature and the work and the mandate of Jesus, It's not up to me to reduce those qualities to the level of my understanding, but instead upgrade my understanding to see Jesus as the exhaustive revelation of the Father and understand that in his hand, he holds both justice and love at the same time. You know, the Bible actually says there's a blessing that comes from reading these words. I'm almost done, but let me prove it to you. It says this in Revelation 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written, because the time is near. You may not even like this topic. That's okay. But just by virtue of you being here this morning, there's a blessing that's coming upon your life. Blessed is he who reads these words. Not just reads these words, but hears these words and follows these words and holds these words dear to his heart, why? Because the end is near. Friend, for us as believers, our blessed hope is the return of Christ. Coming back for a victorious church, not hiding from culture, not scared to death of our own shadow, not working overtime through rhetorical gymnastics to appease a politically correct culture. No, he's coming back for a victorious bride. And what we do here on Sunday mornings is practice for the great reveal. Jesus is coming soon. Blessed is he who reads these words. Blessed is he who understands these words. Friend, the time is near. Would you stay with me as we close this morning? I know a lot of people might not talk about this topic or might think it's odd to say, but friend, I feel in my spirit it's so important for the season we're in. It's so important to talk about the return of Christ. It's not a hope so. And I sure hope Christ returns. It's not a maybe if we play our cards right. Now, I believe that not only do we live in the last days, but we live in the last hours of the last days. And Jesus is coming soon. For the next number of weeks, at the end of every service, I'm going to give people an opportunity to put fresh faith in Jesus Christ. Because anytime I talk about a subject like this, it touches people's hearts. Because scripture says he's planted eternity in our hearts. And I want you to know today that if you're not right with God, you can be. I want you to know today if you've never prayed a prayer like this, today can be a fresh start for your faith. I want you to know today that if you feel far from God, today is a great day to recommit your life to the followership of King Jesus. Friend, you live on borrowed time. And today is your day of salvation. I'm going to ask the guys to put that prayer on the screen and... In a moment, I'm gonna to count to three, and I'm just gonna ask us as a church community, we're gonna read this together. And as we do, I believe that today many, many, many are making decisions that will forever secure their destiny and change their present. Come on, when I count to three, let's read this together. One, two, three. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sin and that you raised him to life. I want to trust him as my Savior and follow him as Lord from this day forward. Guide my life and help me to do your will. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Come on, friend. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today or maybe the first time in a long time, I should love to pray for you after service. Add my faith to yours. See God do a miracle in your life. At the end of every service, we always call our altar workers forward. We want to give people a chance to encounter the goodness of God. If you need prayer for any reason today, as we close, I'm going to invite you forward. We're going to pray for you. If not, God bless. Thanks so much for joining us.